Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. The links are in the NBN sidebar. Today, my guest is Jody Forrester, author of the book, Guns Under the Bed, Memories of a Young Revolutionary published by Odyssey Books, just published a few days ago, correct? Yes, September 1st. All right, great. Well, welcome, Jody, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Right. I see, you know, from, from going through your book, we share many passions. Some of them may have been, are in the past, but, you know, from the Black Panthers to revolutionary Marxism to Kurt Vonnegut Jr. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, a cat's cradle. In fact, that very book you you mentioned inside the cat's cradle. It was the first adult book I ever read in my life. I was like, I don't know, I think thirteen. Hmm. And it, it got me to understand for the first time that a fiction book could be more entertaining and stimulating than TV or movies. It was a great discovery for me, you know. But but tell me, how does that fit into your story in Guns Under the Bed? What was happening at the time, I was in a Maoist organization that was that was very much adhering to the ideology of Mao's theories and practices. And one of the most critical rules, as it were, to follow was that all conversation, all reading, all interactions had to be political, that there was nothing uh, more important than what they called the mass line and individual Pleasures such as reading or having friends outside of the organization were simply not permitted. But I. And, and if I just interject here, at the, at the time, the Cultural Revolution was in full str- swing in China. Right? And, and this yes. was kind of this what was, was what was going on there, which was later denounced by um, Deng. But uh, but at the time that there was you know persecution of intellectuals and and whatnot as being counter revolutionaries, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And so if I I my organization my collective knew that I a longtime reader of novels and fiction of all sorts and very much disapproved. So I rather than standing up because you know I was seventeen eighteen years mm-hmm. old. I just snuck them. I would read them when nobody knew I was because no matter what my commitment was to the ideology, I couldn't give them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, that, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you were 17 or 18, um, you know, part of this organization. And th- there's so much, um, you know, re- uh, relevance uh, for what's going on today. And I, I certainly want to bring that in. But to, to concentrate on, on the meat of your book, uh, Bill Ayers, who wrote um, a little um, blurb at the beginning, uh, he, he says, uh, he has something that I think is an important thing that we can take off on, which is every memoir turns on a fundamental question. How did a person like this get into a place like that? Um, so really, how, how did you get into that at 17 or 18 years old? I, to be honest, that is the question that I needed to answer, which drove my writing the book in the first place. I was always uh, cognizant of the, of the, of civil, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, um, and so many others. And I had a very strong moral sense of what was right, what was fair. And I was all, as soon as, pretty much as soon as the, um, Vietnam War came to the houses via television and to see the horrors that the United States were perpetrating there. I I was on the streets as a protester at that point while I was still in high school. And when I went to college initially, I was... Can I ask you the the 
the year that would have been? 1969. Well, no, actually, uh, I graduated in 1969. That was in 1967, I believe. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you were how old? Uh, 15. Right, right. Okay. Okay, yeah. It helps me contextualize it. Yeah, go on. There, when I first went away to college, I was very much needed to find like-minded people. And there I saw a brochure for an anti-war rally that I went to. And there were, there were many speakers, but there was one speaker in particular that held my attention. He talked about the necessity of overthrowing, essentially overthrowing capitalism and imperialism. And for me, that was a huge revelation because previously we knew about we could do this and we knew we could do that. But here was like a singular path that once committed to could actually make a difference in the world. And I was enthralled and found out more about it. He was a member of the organization called Revolutionary Union. And over time, I saw that that was where I wanted to be as well. Oh, that's so. So you just sort of um, went and volunteered yourself to it, did you? I'm not volunteered. I was really just in the audience. Um, it wasn't really an audience. We were just standing around on the quad. But I, I was very intrigued and I went to speak further with that speaker. And the way to get into the organization is you really had to be educated to a point of knowledge of Marxist-Leninism. And I, one doesn't just volunteer in the organization, one has to be recruited. Right. And I w- underwent a pretty intensive tutoring session with that individual to the point that I at least had a grasp intellectually of the, the uh, ideology and practices of Mao Zedong and had many discussions with the regional chairman, Barry Greenberg, of the organization until he felt I was ready to join. Okay. And, uh, and so how old were you while you were learning Marxist uh, revolutionary theory? <laughs> 17. 17. Yeah, yeah. And, and you were, and so this, uh, I know in the book you had mentioned, um, one of your colleagues who was still in high school and he was, um, he had, uh, professor parents in Palo Alto and he was recruited by a, a professor. I can't remember if it was, uh, Bruce Franklin. Princeton. right, right. Um, uh, was it uh, your recruiter? Was he a professor? Oh, no, no. He was just another freshman, but he had also been in Palo Alto. The organization's seeds began in Palo Alto under the auspices of, of uh, Dr. Franklin and a few other people. So uh, Joe, his name is, he came to San Jose with the intent of expanding membership of the Revolutionary Union. Yeah, that's it. I'll tell you, it's it's very, very interesting for me because um, when I was around 15 years old myself, uh, and I, I was born in 68, so in the 80s when I was in high school, um, there was a kind of activism coming up then, you know, with, uh, um, you, you had this big Band-Aid and Live Aid, the Ethiopian crisis, but then later you... Um, uh, they had things like Amnesty International, and that kind of captured people's imaginations widely in a popular way. But then in my school, uh, there were these radical uh, liberation theologists. I went to a Catholic school, and um, and they introduced me to all this sort of FMLN going on in El Salvador, and and then the history of the civil rights movement, and and the stuff you went through, right? And so we kind of idolized all that kind of stuff you guys did, and. Um, you know, I remember I was also like 15 years old joining in my first protest and on a corner, it was some nuclear arms issue. Um, we were protesting, there was a plant nearby and, um, you know, the, and, and so we, we were drawn in, you know, and I, I was sort of enthralled, uh, you know, by all that stuff and, and discovering a whole new world. And, and I myself, you know, got involved in even uh, an anarchist organization where, where I was. Mm. And, um, and so, it, uh, but we looked to you guys, what you were doing in the sixties, you know, with, with this kind of admiration. And, uh, I mean, I never got in anything, uh, violent, like, you know, like you were talking about, I, well, I don't know, you, you, you start off the book, um, talking about not really a violent incident, but, um, you know, something that could have turned violent. I mean, you guys had your guns, you were pointing it, um, 
uh, at, uh, at the door anticipating quite mistakenly <laughs> that a, a policeman would enter your, your room. Was that the most um, sort of traumatic or most violent or potentially violent incident um, you got yourself involved in? It was the most potentially violent because if they had come in, as we anticipated, there would have been a shootout. And who knows who would have survived that. However, there were also uh, street marches where uh, windows were being broken. and. I also describe in my book the most violent activity that I participated in was when Richard Nixon came to San Jose on some kind of a um, run to gather support for his reelection. And there were thousands and thousands of people waiting outside for him because he had just created this huge layoff of engineers, primarily. And so a lot of very angry people were there. There were rocks being thrown. There was, there was a uh, convoy of limousines. He was in the last, well, he famously got, stood up on the hood of his car and flashed two fingers in what could have been, I mean, in the United States, that means uh, peace. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in Britain, it means something yeah. much more. Yeah. So that infuriated the crowd even more. And there was a construction site. Uh, right behind where we were and people were gra gathering bits of concrete to throw at the limos. And I turned out to be right next to his limousine. I mean, he was, I was, he was literally arm's length away and somebody put a rock in my hand and it took me a minute, but I was so angry. We were all so angry that I just started banging it against his window. I could see his face through it. Uh, my own face was reflected in it, and I just banged and banged and banged. The window was splintering, and then they were able. The then the convoy began moving, and I, as I say in the book, my hand. I didn't even realize how bloody it had gotten. Yeah. So that was the most overt violence. I was with people. My comrades were throwing win, uh, rocks at windows as we marched, but. I just didn't have, I tried, but I didn't have really the arm strength to make a difference. So I didn't actually do that. Yeah. Have you seen, um, you know, any, have you seen the, vi vi the viral clip of um, some protesters um, shouting at a, a woman? Um, I, I think it was in Washington, just having a meal and, and crowding around her and telling her white silence is violence. And it was this really this kind of mob activity. Have you seen that viral clip? I, I have not. This is something that was recently broadcast. Yes, yes, yes. I think mm, la no, last I week. Okay. Because I, I wanted to know how, how familiar that would have felt to you mm. because it, it, it did seem like, I mean, it, it was obviously, you know, some mass hysteria. And that's going on throughout the country. I mean, with, with all this stuff um, that, you know, that, that we're seeing, the, the riots and, and, you know, tearing down of statues and, and, and all these sort of protests and counter protests. How, how does that um, strike you, um, given your experience? We would never have rounded on one individual. It was always representatives of capitalism. And the even the stores I questioned, I was very unhappy with trashing small shops, small shop owners, but it was made clear to me. And, and I have to say, I had trouble with this, but that that the, they were representative of capitalism. And on any level, anybody participating in the capitalist system was was uh, the enemy. Yeah. So I see it now. And at first I was you know pretty upset because how can you not be? Um, mm. But ultimately, I understand it. I understand that what is a store, what is a department store, what is a police station compared to 400 years of severe malignant intent towards people of color. And Exactly. As I said, I don't really condone it. And the, but also the reality is it was a very small percentage of people. And many of them were people who were just taking advantage of all these goods being available. Yeah. But as I said, 
I do understand it, particularly coming from the from people of color. Yeah. Um, now, let me ask, how long were you involved in the um, RU? Three and a half years. Three and a half years, right. And, um, and so, w- what type of uh, activity were you involved in in the group? Mostly there were study groups. There, were, yeah. um, there was strategizing. There were demonstrations that we initiated and led. I was often the person that was the per, holding the um, the megaphone saying "Let's go" because I was really good at riling people up. Yeah. Um, and and but a lot of our the majority actually of our work was education was was trying to let people know what was going on and who the oppressors were. Right, right. So, like in terms of like other other groups, like um, you know the Weather Underground, you know, for example, and uh, the Black Panthers, you know. So, did you have any relations with them at all? The Black Panthers, we actually tried to bring under the umbrella of the Revolutionary Union. Some of them were interested, but mostly they really didn't want to join a white um, hierarchical organization. They had their own agenda. But we did work in tandem with them. We we shared the podium, the platform for speeches. The Weather Underground were a completely different um, uh, organization. We knew about them, but they were based in Chicago and back east, and we were on the West Coast, so there was really no overlapping. They were thought to be w- without ideology. I mean, the majority of the weather underground were college graduates who came from a pretty comfortable middle-class background, um, white, all white. And we didn't really, frankly, approve of their, their, um, their, their tactics. That said, there was appreciation. I mean, I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. That's really cool what they're doing. (laughs) Right. I'm, I'm, uh, Interested in the the Black Panthers quite a bit. Um, I, who was um, who was on the platform that you guys um, shared with with um, anybody that might know, like Fred Hampton or Bobby Seale or anybody or Huey Newton himself. Bobby Seale, yeah, Huey Newton, Erica okay. Huggins, and wow. Eldridge Cleaver. Wow, are wow. the names that and and we met. I I knew who they were. They knew who I was, not intimately, but. We did right. have a relationship. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, and so from the way you described the group, um, did you have ties to uh, either, you know, the Communist Party of the USA or the Soviet Union or I, I don't know if the PRC had any um, uh, groups in, in the US at the time, although the, the Panthers were very you know, very much um, Maoist. Uh, did, it, did you pick up your Maoism from the Panthers? Or, or, or I mean, you, you, seem to be, you seem to be very, um, you know, ideologically almost Leninist in, in that sense. Um, so did, did you have these sort of international links? No, not to, I don't think so. Our, our main links were to China. Um, the CP, Russia, were considered revisionists, meaning, yeah, the, yeah okay. so. We pretty much disdained Russia's version of communism. As there imperialist, were, kind of the way, like the Maoist I wouldn't line. say imperialist, just the wrong, they were just on the wrong path. Right. And they didn't really follow a true Leninist ideology. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't say, I mean, we weren't literally enemies, but we certainly didn't respect them. And I'm pretty sure they didn't respect us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, you, there are, um, you know, in, in some of the stories you have in your book, um, for instance, you, you talk about some of the weapons that, um, that your group had, like M1 carbines, 30 odd sixes, shotguns, Colt 45s and whatnot. Now, I was really wondering, you know, like, where did you guys get money to buy these guns? How did it happen? Because, I mean, in, in Trinidad, now, the, the groups I was talking about before is when I was, I grew up in Toronto, so the anarchist groups and, and that type of stuff and the, 
the liberation theology. But, but when I came to live in Trinidad, um, I, I got to know a lot of the uh, revolutionary uh, movements and groups down here as well. And th there was something, a group here called the National Union of Freedom Fighters um, that you know, was um, an armed group here. And they would sometimes do, you know, bank robberies. They would hide out in the hills. And they were also like, you know, the, the sons and daughters of young, privileged uh, uh, black people in the United States, I mean, in uh, Trinidad and Tobago, you know, from, from the elite, but they, uh, you know, had, had gone off there. And I know, you know, some college professors and stuff, uh, some university professors who helped them get their supplies, get their um, probably weapons as well, money for weapons and stuff like that. So there was those kind of linkages. Um, what was it uh, like for you guys? Like, how, how, how did that, uh, you know, how did that work? Was it your own money you guys bought this stuff with? Uh, how did that work? I was, as I say in the book, there, there was a very um, stringent hierarchy and I was pretty much on the lowly level being a college student. I don't really know how, well, yeah. I do know that they got their guns from uh, gun shows. Mm -hmm. And I do know they had fundraising that we all were meant to contribute a certain amount of, of our income, which mine was pretty much zero. Yeah. But um, to the organization, I couldn't say anything more than that. I, I was never privy to that information. Okay. All right. Okay. So now in terms of your, your time with uh, the Revolutionary Union, do you... Uh, do you have regrets? What are, I mean, yeah. Do you have any regrets? And if so, what are they? I don't have regrets. I was young and very idealistic. And here was an ideology that made sense to me. And that experience was, as all experiences are that one goes through, pretty key to the person that I've become. Regrets? No, I really don't. Um, there was there there's several things that I feel very alienated from, mm -hmm. but at the time it, it made sense to me. And my only question, which I believe I start in the prologue, explaining maybe not, but that how did I, out of the millions of people marching, out of the millions of of activists for civil rights and anti-war and and against black oppression. How did I get so far out that I joined an organization as singular and violence-based as, as the RU? And that's the question, that's kind of the through line through my book, that that's the question that I sought hard to answer. I go into my past to look at who I was before then. I look at who, where I went from there. So yeah, no regrets, no regrets. Right, right. But, um, so what's the story of you leaving the group? Just, um, how, yeah. How, how did, how did you leave? Why, you know, if you can just explain that to the audience. Um, should I tell the longer story or the shorter story? Uh, you, you, we can start with the shorter one if you want, okay. but, but we don't mind if you, if you take a little excursion now and again. Some things happened that made me feel very abandoned by my comrades, which is something that I would have never expected because one thing about being in an organization like the RU is these is that these other people in your collective have your back. And mm. a, an occasion happened that nobody had my back. And I was very hurt and very angry. And I had a meeting with Barry Greenberg, the collective, regional collective head, as I had said. And he was chastising me for this role, for for what had actually happened. And I that wasn't how I saw it. Saw it. I was beat up um, by a small, by four, three, maybe Latino, young Latinos, teenagers who thought that I was gay. And his response was that I, that how could I not be sympathetic to an oppressed community who by their religion and by their, um, their experiences were anti-gay. And I was just outraged because it wasn't as if I had initiated the violence. And I, yeah. I said, you know, we, I was abandoned. This happened. Nobody came to me. Nobody inquired how I was. And 
I went to see him the next day and he was, like I said, chastising me. And I, I just blew up at him. I felt like, you know, as I said, so betrayed. And I just stood up and said, I quit, which shocked him and shocked me. But I felt so violated and I walked out and that was the end of my being a member of the Revolutionary Union. Right, right. So, so now, I mean, it's interesting. Um, so, you, I mean, your commitment was to this wider social revolution, you know, a uh, global revolution, really, probably yes. the Maoism. And, um, and when, so when you left for, you know, those, those personal reasons, um, ideologically, um, did you, did you also, you know, um, abandon the ideology or, or yeah, how did you reconcile that ideology? I had already been on the fence about a couple of things that were critical to being a member of the Revolutionary Union. They were two things. One, the guns, because deep down in my heart, I was not a violent person or a proponent of violence. And the casualness or the seemingly casual attitude towards the guns was never something I was comfortable with. Then there was the, I, I was discouraged from being still being, maintaining friendships that went back to my, pretty much to my early adolescence and even childhood, because those people were not revolutionaries. And I, I was pretty much like reading the novels, yeah. at, maintaining those friendships secretly. But I am by nature a pretty personal person. I, the way I communicate is, is very much on a, personal level. And it was so hard for me to maintain the revolutionary line to talk to people only in context of the intention to recruit them. So those things had been um, brewing for a while, quite a while. And I, in my explosion, I think that those things were part of what precipitated it, my leaving. Right. You know, I, a, a lot of these, you know, these groups, um, even, you know, from reading your book and from my, you know, my own experiences with them, so they, they share so much of the traits of, of a cult, you know, <laughs> like a, a religious cult. Um, and, you know, j just like the thing you're supposed to, you know, cut off your relationships with your family or friends or people who are, you know, not, I, you know, all interaction has to be, you know, for recruitment and ideological uh, reasons. Um, do, do you also uh, agree that, you know, that, uh, there's a sort of, uh, definitely this cultish aspect to, towards it and, and what's your reflections and your experiences of that? When I left the organization, I stumbled a lot because they had defined my relationship with people and the way I thought for so long. And it had gotten so deep in me that. I had to, it's as if I had to relearn a new language to mm -hmm. be able to communicate with people who weren't in the group. And it, it took a long time. There were certain rites of passage that one goes through in their late adolescence and early 20s that I had not. So I had a lot of catching up to do. It wasn't, I still remember it was a year later and I was with a close, close friend who had always had mixed feelings. Well, not mixed feelings. She'd always been very um, adamant against the Revolutionary Union and my involvement in it. And we were walking and I just came out of nowhere. And can I, can I swear on this show? Um, Better I not. guess. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I, <laughs> I, I don't know uh, actually what the rules are of, of swearing, but um, I, I guess in context, you can do it. <laughs> well, what I said to her was, fuck the RU. Right. Um, and that's when I began to see that it is, it was a cult. There was, like I said, a, a very specific hierarchy. It was um, patriarchal, all men at the top, white men at the top. There were a couple of women, but in, in as, you know, they were wives of the elite in the organization. And, you know, by the definition of brainwashing, yeah. I, I do concur that that was happening. And even the way when I left, I kept my involvement with the organization a secret for many, many years, because what was truly driven into me is the importance of, of the security and that we should not talk about the organization in terms of its, its internal workings, that it was only okay to talk about it in terms of the, um, the ideology. 
And I felt very guilty for leaving. I felt very embarrassed also for having gone so far out. So I didn't talk about it for many, many, many years. Nobody knew. In fact, people who've read the book who are old friends have been writing, I had no idea. I did not know that this is something you had done. I thought I knew everything about you. It's been very interesting to hear those responses. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it's interesting. Your your friend that sort of uh, sparked this this epiphany and mm-hmm. this sort of breaking through for you. Um, uh, was she um, political at in any way at all, or was she just apolitical? She was apolitical in terms of not being an activist, but she did. She was political minded right. um, in terms of civil rights and. Um, okay. fairness at large. But the thing that she said when I said that is, Jody, I've been waiting for a year to hear you say that. She was so happy. Right. <laughs> she was just so happy by that revelation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find a lot, um, you know, f- from these groups and, and involvement that um, a, a lot of the times, like when you see some of these uh, violent explosions and whatnot it's you know they say it's for you know the overthrow of capitalism or whatnot but you know you look in their eyes and you see they're they're angry with their father or there's some sort of family drama there or the it's it's something very personal psychologically that that they're trying to work out and the ideology becomes a sort of uh, uh you know this way for them to vent um, a, a lot of these problems. And I know in your book, you, you do look at a lot of the, the personal psychology, uh, you know, a bit of the family drama, your father, and you talk about self-hate. Um, could you expand on that a little bit more for us, please? First, let me respond to what you said initially. I I don't know that people were, pro, you know, essentially protesting their parents. Mm-hmm. I really can't speak to that. Um, I know that we were a generation of of people who really felt that we were the world was being tr- cheated um, for the of the opportunity of many opportunities because of the le- elitism. I mean, it's the same as it is today, though it's mm-hmm. even actually worse. There, in my own case, is um, as as difficult as my family was, and the fact that I always felt outside of them. I don't know in the long run how much that influenced my organization. I mean, my joining the organization. I really don't. Right. I think that my personality and character were formed early on. And the type of character that was formed was very rebellious against the, um, con- against conventional, the conventional culture. And, you know, you have to remember, I lived in Los Angeles, which was really a hotbed of, of uh, uprising against the culture. I mean, there was our own cultural revolution going on. And Mm -hmm. I was drawn to that like a moth to flame. I always felt um, that was where I felt at home. In terms of the self-hatred, that was much more a function of my physical appearance for which I never was comfortable in my skin and was was picked on, maybe we would say bullied um, when I was younger, and the one of the attractions of the RU was that they really didn't care what I looked like. Um, they didn't really care what size shoe I wore or that, you know, my hair was frizzy or any of those things. They just I was accepted as a fellow comrade because of the way that um, because I agreed with with the principles. That's, Does that, that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that that is very interesting. And yeah, it, it, and I think that. Um, you know, that, that's very true, you know? So, uh, you know, with, with a lot of those movements, um, you know, because they, they have a, a critique of, of what the, you know, of, of normal society, if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah. So a lot of people who might feel awkward, uh, feel accepted inside there. And so that, that's, that's part of the attraction and, and there's certainly, you know, the, the ideology is part of that. So yeah, that, that's interesting. That's interesting. There were more than a few people who had been raised in that environment, whose parents were were Marxists, whose um, who were influenced, who basically came forward to be in our generation of 
Marxist Leninist. Right. And your your own family, as you mentioned in the book, were were not from that tradition, but they were sort of more uh what, liberal Democrats, would you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're Jewish and mm-hmm. amongst I mean, Jews are at least then, I don't know if I don't think it's true now anymore, were um always more liberal minded than um than Gentiles. That's just yeah. sort of, you know, that's our, our heritage. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, so their uh, support of, well, did they know of your activity? Because I mean, (laughs) it's it's interesting. Um, You you know, you mentioned how, you know, one of the guys aiming the guns at the door, um, anticipating this pig from coming (laughs) in. Uh, was living with his parents. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what his situation was, but he was, like I said, he was pretty young. And yeah. I don't know what his family thought. Um, my parents eventually knew that I was involved in the anti-war movement, but mm. they did not know that I was a communist. I just never would have shared that with them. They would not have felt good about it. They would not have been happy about it at all. And my father did express concern that mm. I was... Um, on the streets marching. And I, I reassured him that, yes, I was, but I wasn't violent. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't losing my head is what he was concerned about. Right. They didn't know. And I, and I'm skipping forward to what will happen later in the, in the book, but they did Mm -hmm. not know until um, the FBI came to visit them and they were, and told them I was a communist. And this was, you know, pretty much almost before the, actually this was after the time that I quit. And, you know, they were, they were pretty, um, if I was still in the organization, it would be in a different conversation, but as it were, it was just more that they worried about the, the situation that I might be potentially, um, set up for. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned your Jewish heritage and whatnot and, and, um, the, the head of the revolutionary union, um, I believe also was Jewish, right? And and in the whole communist movement, I mean, in New York City, in in LA, there, there's a very like among the Trotskyists in particular, there's a very strong um, Jewish element. And I know a lot of of the you know Caribbean Marxists and and a lot of the third world nationalists, um, sometimes who studied in New York or whatever, would find themselves, uh, you know, in in those organizations and 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 the uh all the the ethnic factors to to the you know to the left-wing movement to the communist movement are, are very interesting like the garveyites and the communists and the third world nationalists and the indian nationalists and 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 the uh you know, among the jewish people you had this sort of the zionist versus the communist for a long time when we were talking mid-century and and from before these um th- things are actually quite interesting uh, to me, but did, did your family have any sort of experience? I, I, I know I hear a lot of Jewish people saying, oh, you know, yeah, there's always some uncle somewhere who was involved in this communist um, movement somewhere in the back. Did you, did your family have any sort of, um, no, 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 I was, I was the only one. Um, (laughs) there were none of, I mean, my family were all basically in business. My father was an insurance broker. It was a mom pop. Um, office. My mom worked with him. My grandparents, my grandfather was a truck driver and then he owned a couple of trucks for delivery services. There were, they were nobody in my family were, was um, wealthy. Well, Mm -hmm. there was, there is a cousin who was, but, um, (laughs) but certainly now, you know, I don't think they really gave any thought to civil rights or the right. Vietnam War. Eventually, you know, I mean, the Vietnam War was was broadcast over and over every night in the news. And my father in particular was, was not, was, did not support it, mm-hmm. but they weren't by nature activists. Right. Um, as far as being Jewish, we were never a, a, an observant family. Yeah. My my parents, well, my fa- mother for sure, though not you know, mm-hmm. not in a in a stand up kind of way, was a Zionist because they were from a generation where Jews needed a place to gather, and they didn't really think about the fact that the Palestinians were being displaced, mm-hmm. um, which I did, and I you know to this day I am embarrassed by 
Israel and feel like, you know, they've done so much wrong to the Palestinian people that it's, it's, um, I don't, I, you know, there are, there are a lot of Jews that feel that way, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More don't. Yeah. 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 You know, this is, uh, let me talk about this issue a a little bit more. Uh, This idea of intersectionality, you're, you're aware of that issue, that notion? Well, I do know what it means, but in what context are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to explore it a little more because um, uh, you, you talked about when you were beaten up by some Latino youths, right? And, That's and right. So, so there was that conflict there um, between, you know, I guess you could say feminism, uh, nonviolence, uh, ethnic, um, you know, um, I, I suppose class element was inside there as well. So, so, so you know, it, uh, intersectionality has, has made a, a, a big sort of deal today that, you know, okay, it's like you stack the oppressions and whoever has the highest stack of oppression is, is um, you know, I suppose to be the, you know, the most privileged in, in this sort of in inverted way, um, you know, so, so has, has a privilege to speak a, a, about against oppression. But there are so many contradictions, you know. Um, you know, for instance, like even in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And, and let's say in Black nationalism as a whole, right? I, you know, I mentioned some of the ethnic contradictions between certain ethnic groups, but then also even things like, you know, attitudes uh, toward homosexuality, right? Which you also mentioned um, in, in the Latino group. And then, so you mentioned with the Zionists uh, as well, the Palestinian issue, that's kind of an intersectionality there because, you know, um, as as you know, the Jews are trying to establish their their own homeland because of the oppression they have, uh, you know, they have felt. But then the Palestinian issue um, uh, comes in there as well. So in it, it seems that um, uh, a, a lot of time this way of of kind of simply equating groups because they are oppressed, it doesn't work out. In reality, because they're oppressed in different ways, and each group, you know, internally has its own sort of oppressions, and and it it sort of seems like a, a formula for a kind of civil war. And, and I mean, I can sort of even see it now in the Black Lives Matter movement, the contradictions between you know some of the LGBTQ groups and the black you know the black nationalist groups, and then you know some of the other groups and. And they may soon be warring sort of amongst themselves. And your personal story about how you left, I think, captures uh, some of that. I, I don't know if you have any reflections you, you want to make on that from your, both from your own experience and sort of what you're observing now as what's happening around in America. Well, there certainly is our contradictions within the group. Um, there's even in Palestine, there's those that, um, rule, um, mm-hmm. Conan Heights. And then I, I'm forgetting, oh God, West Bank and with the West Bank, yeah. they're, they're rivals. That's right. So, and yep. then in Israel, you, we have the, uh, the pro Zionists and in the younger generation, a large number of anti-Zionists, mm-hmm. um, here the same thing happens and within yeah the black nationalists um are there still black nationalists in in terms of an organization yeah actually the uh last month i saw this uh video that kind of went viral about this group Uh, i believe it was in atlanta and asking for texas and they were marching all like armed like a kind of a revival of the black panthers in a big way it was was really uh really interesting but the panthers never wanted a state that was more like the nation of islam and and, yes exactly but uh but these guys were like uh, you know the tactics of the tactics and look of the Panthers, but with the demands of the nation of Islam. So that was very interesting. Yeah, I do remember that. That was a bit confusing um, to see. But, you know, I think ultimately there are those that the, the more charismatic leaders who have risen because of their, their offering, well, as the RU did for me, because of their offering a vision of, of a possibility of mm-hmm. a world that raises people above what their day-to-day life is. And yeah. those, you know, whether be they black nationalists, be they um, 
Black Panthers, I mean, the Black Panthers, you have to remember, were much more about um, bringing lunches to the school kids yeah. and educate in education and, um, you know, th- bringing programs to the community than they were ever about their guns. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, there is there are contradictions within Mm-hmm. It, each, each, group. Each, each group ideology and uh, y- you know because ultimately it comes down to the, the leaders who are essentially ego driven yeah. and not necessarily um, sensitive to the needs of those who whose needs are very um, strong yeah 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 yeah, I mean, in the end, you know, for, you know from my in my own sort of life journey and intellectual journey you know but it, a lot of these ideologies, you know, they, they have you know, these these views of the world with angels and demons, and and but in the end, we are we are all, you know, flawed humans, and uh, and so so even within the, the the group you idealize as as you know the most angelic you know oppressed group, you know, you'll find ugly things inside inside us all, and and we will all recognize it because we have it all in our own groups, and it's. It's it's all part of the human experience, yeah. And um, yeah, you were going to say something. I agree. Um, that's been my experience as well. Though though, when I was younger, I very much saw things in terms of black and white. There were good people. There were bad people. Yeah. And the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese. I do say something about this in my book that I revered. Yes. Um, Ho Chi Minh, I thought definitely put on a pedestal. When the war ended and the the North Vietnam were declared um, victors, he then led um, an army, his army, down the shores of the Mekong Delta and setting to fire villages that he believed housed um, individuals sympathetic to the South Vietnamese and American side. And that just so upset me. I felt like how could he do that? Well, it's the same way that how could Jews um, be so insensitive to the Palestinians? You mm-hmm. think that these are a people who have been themselves so marginalized that they ought to have empathy and sensitivity towards um, other populations of the same with the same sort of experience. And when Ho Chi Minh did that, it threw me for so like several years. Really? Before I, because I felt like I had so misjudged them, the the mm-hmm. North Vietnamese, I had so misjudged him that I, I just couldn't. Um, I just lost confidence in my my dis- ability to discern um, and have any kind of confidence in my own political opinion. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. I can. I can understand that. I. I can definitely understand that. Now, when you left the group. Um, what, how, what about your politics? How, how did your politics change? My politics have actually never changed, yeah. but being no longer an activist, I didn't, well, act on them. I stayed in San Jose for another year just because that's where I lived and, mm. but not being, um, not in any way being on the streets. And then I moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, kind of on this, on a, uh, spur of the moment sort of thing. And the people who I became close with were not people who were political at all. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, sequestered that part of me and I never spoke of it to anybody, but internally my, my, uh, feelings about what was right and what was wrong. Um, I still did have a Marxist point of view, but it was not um, shared or acted on for many, many years. Right, right. Did you, did you find yourself um, embracing um, political personalities or causes later on that uh, you wouldn't have anticipated before? You know, there, there's a lot of people that take a journey from, you know, the, like uh, the Crystals, for example, from being Trotskyists to being neocons and founding the neocon. Uh, did, did you... Um, sort of ever embrace any sort of uh, conservative uh, groups <laughs> or personalities because, because you saw some of the dangers that extremism on, on the left uh, may have led to. Was that a part of your uh, journey never, at all? Never, never, never. never. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm so not a conservative by nature, 
And what I also would never embrace was another kind of hierarchy, another kind of organization. I think it was more the um, closed-mindedness, the singular um, point of view of the movement that I rejected, but it was really not the... I, no, I was always, you know, even though I was a quiet yeah. <laughs> leftist, I've never not been. And now with everything that's happened, well, it was with Iraq when, when we invaded Iraq and uh -huh. that woke me up again. And I was, and then with a women's movement, the not me movement, mm -hmm. I was back on the streets again for that. Um, okay. And then, and now with Black Knives Matter, to tell you the truth, I'm not physically, um, I, well enough to put myself on the street, but one of my daughters, actually both of my daughters, but one in particular has been very active. And honestly, I'm just going to be prouder of her. Right, right, right. And um, yeah, th so this is interesting uh, in terms of the way you've kind of sequestered your life. And it's, it's I, I always find this very interesting about, you know, you, you wonder where all these, you know, radicals from the 60s went to and, and you know, and you find them in very surprising places afterward, you know, and, and they've kind of hidden that past, uh, that past away, which, which I, which I always find, um, uh, strange. I, I don't know if strange is a word, but, um, but I, I wish it would be more openly integrated, um, into their sort of personalities and life history and I want to, because uh, it's surprising that sort of people either in business or in politics or, or in other establishment um, places that had these very, very radical uh, pasts. You, you yourself became a, a chiropractor, correct? And, and that's right. And you, so you, you didn't sort of uh, continue along a political path. And uh, at the beginning of, uh, in the preface for your book, when you, talk about i suppose what motivated you it's when you found this this box of of stuff uh and, and memorabilia from from these years uh so is it that uh, y your your family was uh was totally unaware or you know they had just some vague idea yeah, what what was a yeah, it was was it a moment of a, a personal revelation you have to make to your family as well. Um, what, what was that like? My husband knew because, you know, as in any close relationship, talking mm -hmm. about where we've come from was, was important. Yeah. I had two pronged, uh, well, and I think I mentioned earlier responses to that time in my mind. Once one is that, well, most of all, it was how do you tell people that you were once involved in a violent, um, so far left organization yeah. because the people that I met were not political. And as a chiropractor, I certainly didn't want my patients and even, and my friends at the time, the only friends who knew were the people who I'd been friends with for many years and were witness to that time. My daughters didn't know, um, nobody in my family, well, my family is, you know, like a handful of people, but none of them knew. And I was, um, I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I was embarrassed because I, you know, was aware that that path was so rarely taken by others in, that I would meet. And I was embarrassed that I, and I felt guilty because at the very end of the conversation that I had with Barry, where I was leaving, after I told, said, I'm quitting, he said, I always knew you didn't have it in you. You're just <laughs> too, you're too petty, bourgeois, you, yes. you never made a good communist. And that was like... A, a knife to my stomach. I felt so guilty because I really wanted to be a good communist yeah. and I did work hard at it, but he, he was right. He, I mm -hmm. have to say he was right. But at the time <laughs> I was just, so that the, both yeah. the embarrassment and the guilt were the main reasons that I didn't say anything. It wasn't until I wrote, was writing the book that I would tell one person and then another person. And then as the responses were not what I expected, like, wow, I don't even want to know you. Instead, like, that's amazing you did yeah. that, that I began to realize that I had marginalized myself, that nobody else was going to do that. I told my daughters, who by then were, um, I believe, college age or at least a maybe a little younger, and they were proud of me. Mm -hmm. So it slowly became, what, what are you working on? What are you writing? And I tell people and I was always like, oh, I don't know if I want to say anything. 
But their responses again were, you know, that was the zeitgeist of the time. We were all so angry. Um, we didn't do what you did, but we, um, we, we applaud where you went. So that was when I began to be open about my involvement. Right, right, right. And um, there's something I just want to jump back to that that you mentioned, um, which was the FBI story with your parents. Uh, Could you just share a bit of uh, that with the, uh, with our listeners here? There was in the, oh God, when was this? In the early seventies. But again, it was after I left the organization that a report came out from a Congress, congressional subcommittee on radicals and revolutionaries in the Bay Area. And the what they concentrated on in this book was the Revolutionary Union. Mm-hmm. And their information came by moles that the FBI had planted in the RU, who gave, you know, all these, you know, gave all of our names up and little descriptions were put in the book that were, in my case, it said that I was um an uh, efficient crowd agitator and an active member of women's liberation. There was, um, so what they did is they, they went to my parents who lived in Los Angeles. I was at that point still in San Jose and the FBI came to them and they knocked at the door and my parents didn't let them, well, my father was, you know, outraged and didn't let them in, but they told him that I was a communist, that I was a member of this organization and that I needed to go to Washington to testify in the, for the committee. And they made it sound like I didn't have any choice. Mm-hmm. And my parents called me that night really, really upset. And yeah. the first thing my father said was, are you a communist? And I said, well, you no, know, but I was. And they were like, is all this true about you? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then they just were, you know, and then the FBI came back to them again. And at that point, my father basically just told them, you know, he was. He just, you know, he was a man who even, who had a tremendous, um, oh, what's the word, boundaries about people in power right. trying to disempower people like myself. And he just said, no, she's, you know, she's not going to be going to Washington. No, you need to leave. But they did give him a copy of the book. And then within days, I was working as a factory on the, on an um, electronic, um, fabrication line. And at that point I was working there not to recruit people. I wasn't part of a working (laughs) organization, but I did have to make a living. And my skills were, I was a typist bookkeeper and I just didn't want to go back to that. So I got a job there and they, a year into it, they went to my boss, my supervisor, I should say, and gave him a copy of the book. And then he called me in the next day and I saw the book and you know, you can just tell a government printed book. They always have sort of a pale gray, um, you know, very poor presentation. And I saw it and I just sort of sank into my chair and he turned to the page with had my picture on it and said, is that you? And I was like, yeah, it is me. And he asked the same question as my parents. Are you still part of this organization? I don't see any sign of organizing in your day-to-day work. And I said, you know, no, I'm not part of it. And no, I was not there to organize. But the the company was going towards high security because what they were manufacturing was were uh, electronic components that were about to be in everything um right. that you know that we use from radios to uh radars that was in and california that was in was california yeah. in the in the center of the what would become the tech movement but in the center of the what would became silicon valley okay and he said, you know, I can't keep you here. You would never pass security. So, so I left and I applied for several jobs at other fabrication um, organizations and I didn't get them. And can, I, can I, I just got, ask you yeah. a quick question here? So were you, you were a factory worker on the assembly line there? Yes. Okay. So I, would, um, would your sort of Marxist past have, have sort of made that a, a much more romantic job than other people might have thought of it. <laughs> no, no, there was no, no romance about it. They, they had a newspaper article, you know, a newspaper, um, solicit, you know, the work, work available in the newspaper. And like I said, I wasn't really qualified for anything yeah. else. Mm-hmm. So I just applied and I got it. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was weird because I was not working class and the people I was working with were. 
Yeah. But my family, my, you were my among the proletariat, you were a better communist yeah. than Greenberg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He never worked in a factory. Um, you know, but, but my family, you know, two generations ago, my grandparents had, um, come had immigrated secretively. They, they came over to the United States in, um, in steerage in, they were all working class themselves. So it wasn't, I wasn't really so far away. My father mm-hmm. was an insurance broker, but even then he didn't really start to make money until I had left the house, you know? So yeah. I wasn't raised in any kind of a luxurious um, mm-hmm. environment at all. So, you know, working in a factory, yeah, it wasn't really a political choice at all. It was just, I need a job. They were hiring and I yeah. got there. Good, good. Right. Well, you know, um, and we're, we're uh, you know, I've kept you here for an hour. So, le- um, so we should probably wrap up. I've, I've uh, you know, kept you long enough, but what sort of message would you like to leave your readers? Because, okay, let, I guess I'll step back a little. You started writing this in what, around 2012? Yes. Right. So, I mean, so at that time, very different from today. Now it's, it's published in the middle of this, uh, you know, this a kind a revolutionary moment, right? Which, mm, I, yeah, which you yeah. know, in a way, it, it wasn't there. So, I mean, so there's got to be a lot of resonance that you perhaps didn't anticipate in 2012. So, uh, you know, so what messages do you think um, your work has for today? And and what would you like? What message would you like your readers to take away from your book, reading it today in this moment? Um, probably. Okay, so. The message, the message, I mean, I would want people to stand up for what they believe in, to not be passive observers, to join in, in in any way they can, if it's donating, if it's on the streets with Black Lives Matter. I see the millennial generation as being, I'm very hopeful about Mm -hmm. this generation. You know, they've been protesting since the Iraq war. They've been protesting, uh, you know, our invasions into Afghanistan. Um, they've been out there overtly in protest in ways that, um, that give me, like you said, a lot of hope and a lot of promise. And I hope that this is the, you know, there's this very big consciousness now about white privilege, which we certainly didn't have. I never really thought of, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think a huge, huge revelation, you know, for people to become educated about that, to really know that our experience as white people is very different from those of even maybe our next door neighbors or our friends as black people and or people of color i should say because it's also true for the latino people that that i'm hoping that that education and consciousness will lead us to a place that is very very different from what we've had i mean the police brutality that we've been witnessing is so horrific and that's radicalizing people. So as far as what they got out of my book, I think that it's really important to have context, to have history of the um, of the movement against the ruling class. And there are a lot of people who really weren't aware of feminism. I was, you know, right at the first, second wave of feminism. Mm-hmm. And I now this is the third wave of feminism. And I think that history is really critical to a depth of understanding what has occurred and still what needs to occur. All right. Uh, are you going on a book tour at all? <laughs> or, I, I know it's not possible physically, <laughs> really. That was I'm, so hard for me because I did have... I, I'm doing my own marketing. My, my right. publisher is very small. There's no, no publicist. I made... You know, it was very alien to me, but I did make a huge effort and was successful ultimately in lining up bookstores. But of course, that's yeah. that. So yeah. what I've been doing is soliciting virtual bookstores that are having virtual events. Uh, many of them are already booked. Many of them are have backed away because they didn't realize, you know, they don't have the bandwidth for it. Right. But I have booked several and I've booked podcasts like yours. I've mm-hmm. been on blogs. I've been on, um, on, uh, have had interviews both on social media and uh, I've been on two radio shows. There's a third one coming up 
this is all small time, but I really want to get the word out there. I didn't write the book for um, financial benefit. I don't expect it. It's, it's, you know, it's a very, um, what's the word? It's, it's, it's definitely, yes, (laughs) exactly (laughs) that. And, but I do really, I do want, I, I think it's an important book in this day and time. And I really hope that it is, gets widespread coverage in widespread readership. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully um, we'll help you out here. We, we get 1.5 million downloads per month. So that's wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to this. I, I am grateful both for the conversation because you ask very good questions and for the opportunity to be um, featured on your, on your show. Great, great. Are there any other projects um, you're working on right now, or this is basically what you're concentrating on? Well, as the time is, is going, I mean, I do have other events coming up uh, towards the end of September and even in October, but there's not really much concentration to be done. Before I wrote this, I actually went, I'm a short story writer, primarily short fiction. Okay. And I don't really think I've got there, I had a need for another memoir. I do write essays that I have, some have been published, um, some have not. And I think, but I think I'm really returning just to short fiction and to essay writing. Excellent. Excellent. So where can readers find your work and, and maybe your, you know, your appearance dates and stuff like that? You have a website, I, right? I have a website. I have yet to put my appearances on it, which okay. is only because I need my daughter, to, <laughs> my millennial daughter to um, post those. And I, I will make sure of that. And there will be links and many of, is, is this recorded? Will there be a link to it? Yeah. Yeah. It, we, we can put it on the page. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And so, but here, my website is um, HTTPS mm-hmm. colon, or am I right about colon? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, two forward slashes, www.jodyaforester.com. Okay, great. And that tells a lot about the books that has links for purchasing it. Yeah, please purchase. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been very enlightening and enjoyable. Once again, the book is Guns Under the Bed, Memories of a Young Revolutionary. And we've been speaking to the author, author Jodie Forrester. It's been a pleasure. Mine too. I, thanks so much. Thank, thank you also to you, our listeners. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of New Books in Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. Thank you.